Well, welcome. I want to uh, just share with you a little something that I shared with the men at the retreat. And uh, not a deeply spiritual thing necessarily, but um, just let me first just ask, how many here are um, German? Uh, back right. Come on, raise your hand. Let me see. How many are Norwegian? Raise your hand. Pretty high. Um, okay, let's do this. Um, there's an Irishman, a Mexican, and a German. And they were doing construction work on a scaffolding of the 20th floor of a building. And it was time to eat lunch. And so they were taking out their lunch. And the Irishman said, as he took out his lunch, corned beef and cabbage. <laughs> if I get corned beef and cabbage one more time for lunch, I'm going to jump off this building. Well, the Mexican opened his lunch and exclaimed, burritos again. If I get burritos one more time, I'm going with you. Well, the uh, German opened his lunch and said, baloney. If I get bologna one more time, I'm jumping off this roof, too. Well, the next day, the Irishman, he opens his lunchbox, sees corned beef and cabbage, and jumps to his death. The Mexican opens his lunch, sees a burrito, jumps right after him. The German opens his lunch, sees the bologna, and he jumps to his death as well. They're at the funeral, and the Irishman's wife is weeping, and she says, If I had only known how really tired he was of corned beef and cabbage, I'd never have packed that. In his lunch. And the Mexican's wife, she's weeping as well. She said, I could have given him tacos or, or enchiladas. I didn't realize he hated burritos so much. Everyone turns and, and they stare at the German wife. Hey, don't look at me, she says. He makes his own lunch. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I told that as Norwegians this mor- as a Norwegian one this morning, and I had a bunch of Swedes that came up and said, you can tell any Norwegian joke here you want. Um, <clears throat> let's just bow our head in a moment. Father, speak, I pray, about this incredible topic of your grace. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Philip Yancey, in a book called The Jesus I, I Never Knew, he tells a true story that he says just haunted him when he had heard it from his friend. His friend worked in Chicago in the area where, the, where um, those who were prostitutes and drug addicted and just in, down and out would come. And they, they would try and, you know, they'd go to, this, to these shelters or places just to find a place to stay. And his friend told him this story, which is a true story. He says, a, a prostitute came to me, he says, in wretched straits, homeless, sick, and unable to buy food for her two-year-old daughter. Through sobs and tears... She told me she had been renting out her daughter. Two years old. She'd been doing it to men for their pleasure. She had more, she said she had made more money renting out her daughter for an hour than she could earn a whole night on her own. She said she had to do it. She said to support her own drug habit. And he said, I could hardly bear hearing her sordid story. For one thing, he said, it made me legally liable. I'm required to report such such cases of child abuse. And I had no idea what he said to say to this woman. So he was just kind of dumbfounded sitting there. And at a certain point, at last, he, he said to her, have you ever thought of going to a church? And this is a true story. And he says, I'll never forget the pure, naive shock that crossed her face. Church? She cried, why would I ever go there? I'm already feeling terrible about myself. They just make me feel terrible. And 
I know that's not true of all churches. And I don't mean to implicate all. I, I don't believe that's true of this place. But the reality is, as I thought about this, the mindset of some who, who don't understand um, this very truth of grace, this incredible gift of God's love that is given freely, no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, no matter where we've been, how dearly she needed that. And I thought of, and I think about the fact that Jesus, who would have prostitutes and, and, and people who were tax collectors and people who were the lowest of the low, who were really much like these people that came to this person, they would actually flock to the feet of Jesus. They, they, they would actually find where he was going and cross lakes to get there ahead of him. Because they knew that he was so full of grace and so full of goodness and so full of what they needed. And as I thought about that and as I, I thought of this message as we look at this passage of Scripture this morning, verse 11 of chapter 2 of Titus begins in saying this, as Paul is saying to the church, do you realize that you carry within yourselves, if you have been touched by this grace of God, this goodness of God, if you've been touched by His love, if you've experienced His joy over your life, if you've experienced peace because of His presence in your life, if you've experienced His patience throughout your life, do you realize for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men? Do you realize you... This church, the churches in this community, every person who says, I'm a follower of Jesus, who has in some way been touched by the goodness and love and grace of God. Do you realize that this grace that has showed up to all people for all people, we have that gift to give to people. That we should be able to be the kind of people where you're at at work or, or where you go throughout your community, when you go through a store, when you get gas at the gas station, there is this sense that the grace of God is a part of you in such a way that a person would not in shock turn away and go, I couldn't go to him or her. He says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people, you, me, this church, anyone who says, I want to follow Jesus, to purify for himself a people that are his very own. Eager to do what? Eager to do what is good. These then are the things, Titus, you should teach the people in Crete. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. And do not let anyone despise you. If you look at verse 11, Paul begins and he says, For the, for the grace of God that brings salvation appeared to all men. And what's interesting here is the word for connects you back to verses 9 and 10. Last week we were speaking about this whole idea that where we work and where we live as employers and employees, we are to bring about this goodness of God. We are to be good workers in that sense. And so he actually, in order to understand verse 11, you have to go back to verses 9 through 10. Teach slaves, he says, to be subject to their masters in everything. Try to try and please those masters, not to talk back to their employers. 
and not to steal from them, but to show them they can be fully trusted. And here's the thing that it ties really back to so that here's the purpose why you live the way you live, the way you, the goodness of God should be pouring through you so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive for the grace of God. That brings about all kinds of deliverance and, and rescues people from just horrible situations that they've got themselves into. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to you and to anyone who wants it. Paul's just stated that slaves, or if we looked at last week, those of us who have jobs and, and, and are employed, were to live in such a way that we make the teaching of Jesus attractive. We make the life of Jesus that we live Something that draws people. Think about that. That's, that's, our, that's how we live. When you leave here this morning, part of what you're doing is not just coming and say, oh, I put in some time where I've, I've worshipped and I've done this. Part of what's going on is when you leave, you are actually taking what you've heard and say, God, my life is to draw people. And so he says, you are to live in such a way so that you will make the teaching about this God who is your Savior really attractive to others. In Paul's mind, that's like saying, and this is I really think it is, it's like, it's like saying, Do what you can to make Arnold Schwarzenegger look muscular. Or do what you can to make Halle Berry attractive. Or do what you can to make Bill Gates look wealthy. Or do what you can to make Mother Teresa look sacrificial. In a sense, it's really pretty easy because if you just know Jesus, I mean, that's who he is. He's just attractive. People just are drawn to him. And the grace of God alone is just attractive. But what he goes on to say, if you with your life and all of us who come here on Sunday mornings and part of the thing when we come here on Sunday mornings is we have this we have this um, united sense that we are people who are broken, who have areas in our life that need God's touch. And we don't come out of arrogance. We we got our act together and we're putting in our time so that God would be pleased that we came on a Sunday morning. We come here because we all recognize and we want others to know that we just don't have it together. And we really need this grace of God. We need his love poured into our life. We need to have the joy of God in our hearts. We need to know his peace in tough situations. We need patience because God's been patient to us so that when we begin to see these things develop in us, God looks attractive to people. Right? That's what Paul's saying. And he, and he, he, he says, in a sense, it's almost like in, in one of Yancey's books, it just begs the question, what's so amazing about this grace? So people kind of look at and they're drawn and they go, you've been gracious, you've been kind, you've forgiven, you've... What, what's up? Well, there's four things that uh, I think just incredible truths about God's grace in this in this passage of Scripture. And the very first thing he tells us about God's grace, you can look at it in verse 11. The grace appears. Grace appears. The next thing he tells us is that grace teaches or trains us. Verse 12. And he goes on and he says, if you look at it in verse 13, that grace of God encourages us while we wait in difficult circumstances. And then he goes on in verse 14 and he shows the life of Christ and he shows how good Christ has been. He shows how good God has been to us through the sacrifice of Christ. And he says the grace of God should go out in such a way that it motivates you to want to be good to others like he's been good to you. That's the message. Let's pray. No, I'm just, you know, it's almost true. It's that simple. Grace appears. It brings salvation, says says Paul. Paul begins, he says, for the grace of God in verse 11 that brings salvation appeared to all men. At a specific time in history, the grace of God 
showed up. In the Old Testament, we're told that the grace of God showed up to a guy named Abraham who was living in a foreign land. And I doesn't even tell you that Abraham was necessarily even seeking after God. But whatever was going on, grace through God showed up and said, Abraham, I want to take you someplace. Just follow me. At a certain point, the grace of God shows up to a whole group of people who are called Israel, living in slavery and bondage. And it even says in Scripture at that point that they're not necessarily even calling out to God. Some people are, a few of them are, but not all of them as a nation. In fact, God let things get so bad, they got to such a point that they finally, in desperation, called out. But before they ever called out in desperation, God showed up in grace, started preparing things through Moses. You see, the grace of God shows up to a person named Jacob. Jacob is a liar, a swindler, a cheat. And yet God favors Jacob over his older brother. God takes this guy who's a liar and a cheat and everything else. And at some point in his life, the grace of God actually bruises his hip so that this Jacob guy can't run any longer. He has to stay in the presence of God because God wants him so much and he loves him so much that God wants to bless his life. Some of you have had that experience in your life. You've been running and you've been off and God in his way through a trial, a circumstance comes in and he touches you and stops the running. And you begin to realize how incredibly gracious and loving and good God is. Grace of God shows up to a guy named David. David has this fast track to the throne and all of a sudden things are all thrown off. And eventually this grace of God who shows up and appears to David at a certain point, you see David commits adultery. And this adultery leads to something horrific, a murder. And yet the grace of God is still with him. The grace of God shows up and appears to you. And I don't care what you've done or where you're at. The grace of God, says Paul, the greatest thing in the world that we have for people, for people who bring two-year-old daughters who have been using them and abusing them because of their own sin, God still shows up and says, I love you. I want to be with you. The word appear is very interesting here. He says at one point in the history of the people of Israel, grace was put on display through a person named Jesus. In fact, this passage of Scripture has, I think, in Paul's mind, this passage back in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. Isaiah predicted to Israel that someday in the future would come this Messiah, sent one, this one called Jesus. So that in in verse 2 of Isaiah chapter 9, it says, In the future... God will honor the Galilee of the Gentiles. These were people, Galilee was the hick town, far off, removed place, the place that you wouldn't think God would show up, but God showed up. You might think you're an outcast, you might think that, you know, I don't have my, you know, I'm not part of the in-group, and God shows up and says, I love you. In the future, God will honor the Galilee of the Gentiles. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And on those living in the land of the shadow of death, guess what? A light has dawned. It's appeared, is the word. This is imagery of the sun appearing on the horizon after a dark night. Anybody get up early enough? Well, probably not this crowd. To see the sun this morning? Yeah, a lot of people in the first service did. It was really neat. It was dark and an orange ball just came up and it got light. And it was just like, ah, the night is over. And the word Paul uses in verse 11 picks up this kind of imagery. The grace of God dawned. The word appeared is the word epiphane. It's the word that we get for epiphany. The idea that you have this experience of of revelation, this sense of, of God's presence and light. And maybe it's understanding that you have. Or maybe it's a sense of his peace that fills your heart. And you have this incredible experience, this epiphany. That's how he explains the grace of God, the grace of God that shows up in your life when you least expect it and when you least deserve it. 
It didn't just show up, though, in one time in history through Jesus. He makes appearances today. In fact, this morning, I just wonder if there is someone here. And you're saying, in my life right now, I need God's wisdom. I need his direction. You might be saying, in my life right now, God, there is this trial, this circumstance. I need you. You may be a person who's never opened your heart to the work of God. You may say, this is all new. I'm trying to understand, but I'm really interested. In fact, I would like a God appearing in my life. You know what? It can happen right this moment. It's, it's, not a, it's the simplest thing in the world. You don't have to sign up to go through a bunch of courses to understand it. You don't have to say, I'm going to come every Sunday to church. You don't have to give money. All you have to do is believe that God loves you so deeply, he will enter into your life right now, right this very moment, on the simple hinge of saying, I need you and I will trust you. That's your heart. Just say it before God. In your, in your, he hears it. It's in your mind. What's really interesting, when people do that, sometimes they, they're flooded with a sense of peace. I've known some who are just filled with joy. And I've known some who, as they've trusted God, nothing's happened, but they, they're just really logical people. And they go, you know, I just made that decision. And their life begins to change. Well, the grace of God shows up. And I, I, believe, I believe there's people this morning who have opened their heart. And God is going to show up. It's the way he works. Grace of God shows up. Now he's going to show up to those who need him. He says, when, when we think there's no hope, grace appears. When we're bound by our sin and shame and guilt, grace appears. When we think we've done something no one could forgive us for, grace appears. When it gets pitch black, we have no direction, grace appears. Grace comes offering salvation free of charge. God is a God who loves to rescue. And that's what he says in verse 11 to all people. Making no distinction. God makes, he plays no favorites. And he makes this offer to anyone here. But then he goes on and he says, it's just not that God shows up and he says, hey, I want to be in your life. I want to move in your life. I want to have you to have this epiphany kind of experience with me, whatever that would feel and look like in your life. He goes on to say something really cool. The grace of God does more. Not only does it appear one time and sometimes it appears in dramatic ways, but the grace of God actually stays like a teacher, a personal tutor. You get through the grace of God, through the Holy Spirit who enters your life, you get a actual personal instructor. How many have signed up for personal trainers with regard to exercise ever? You got a better one than a person. It doesn't cost you anything. The Holy Spirit as a personal trainer instructor comes through grace and says, I love you so much. And through my love, I'm going to begin to shape and change you and transform you. You can know that when grace shows up, there will be results. God expects results. Transformation happens. I shared this in the first service, so I'll share it in this, this one as well. They liked it, I guess, but again, it's not deeply spiritual. A minister dies and is waiting in line at the pearly gates. Ahead of him is a guy dressed in sunglasses, a loud shirt, leather jacket, and jeans. St. Peter says to this guy, who are you? I'd like to know who you are so I can kind of find out where you fit here within the kingdom. The guy replies, I'm Joe, a taxi driver from New York. Peter looks at his list, he smiles, he says to the driver, hey man, to the taxi driver, he goes, great. He says, take this silken robe and golden staff, and he points him to these huge mansions. And uh, Joe takes his robe, staff, enters. Behind him is this minister's turn, he's waiting, and he starts a little more erect, and he's a little proud right now. He booms up as Peter's waiting, he says, I'm John, pastor of First Church for the past 43 years. Peter goes, oh, let me take a look. And he looks and says to the minister, here, 
take your cotton robe and your wooden staff, and he points into some shacks and cabins down that direction. He kind of goes, hey, wait a minute. The guy before me, he's a taxi driver, and he got a silk rope and a gold staff, and you point him that way, what's the deal? What's up? And Peter says, well, up here, um, God expects results. While you preach, people slept, and while he drove, people prayed. And don't take this wrong. You don't earn your salvation. But take it this way. When you receive the free gift of grace, when God's presence enters into your experience in your life, here's something you need to know. If you are an angry, kind of bitter person at age 40, if you're still an angry, bitter kind of person at age 80, something's wrong. When grace enters your life, God expects change. Parents. Your kids look at your life. When grace enters your life, it's not about works right now. It's about walking in faith. If they don't see change, they're not going to follow you. And that means they're not going to follow Jesus. Because if you're not seeing change over time take place, I don't know how closely you're following Jesus. Because whenever Jesus got next to people, things began to shift. It says here, for the grace of God actually trains us. Paul in verse 12 says he's a personal instructor. And there's specifically two things he trains us in. One is negative and the other is positive. We're trained to say no and we're trained to say yes. We're trained to say yes or no to a very self-directed life is what he says here. Look at it says in, in verse 12. It, he's speaking about the grace of God that becomes operative in your life. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. There's two things it says about the self-directed life. We do no longer live ungodly lives. We, in fact, become more godly. We become people that have to grow in love. We have to grow in joy. We have to grow in peace. We have to grow in patience. We have to grow in kindness. We have to be a more reliable kind of people. We have to be the kind of people we talked about last week, that when you show up to work, you show up ready to work and do your best. And my daughter, who was in the first service a week ago, said to me, and you also need to mention that you don't become workaholics. So that's true. Because those are passions and desires within you that you learn to say no to as well. See, Jesus had to do that because he understood how much God loved him. He was able to stand in places when, when, the, when, when the Pharisees, who were the power brokers of that day, were looking at him and trying to judge him and see whether he was really a godly person or not. Jesus had to stand up at times and he would have to say no to his own self-directed desires that maybe wanted to fit in or be approved or, or whatever it was. And he had to say no to those things. And he stood up boldly and said to a man, Stretch out your hand and be healed, knowing that in doing so, these people would disapprove of him. And you know why he could do that? You know why he could say no to a self-directed life, whatever that is? You could say no to an over, you know, kind of workaholic life. You can say no to a lazy life. I don't care where it is. The reason you can say no to that is because you know God loves you so much that Jesus was not concerned about what they thought of him. He says no to a... Ungodliness, no to worldly desires, this constant need to, to get what we want when we want it. And we say yes, we're trained to say yes to a spirit led life. Someone after the first service told me, don't go by this too quickly. OK, so I won't. We're trained to say yes to a spirit directed life, folks. It is all about learning to live in the Holy Spirit's presence and to hear and to know his touch and his prompting and to do that. And I have to tell you, when you begin to pay attention and you know, you have when you when you 
received. You had this epiphany, if you want to call it that way. I and mean, that's too big of a word for some, because for some it was just a decision to trust that God loved you. When that happened, the Holy Spirit enters, begins to train and teach you. And life is about learning how to say no to myself in the ways that create all kinds of complex, you know, difficulties in my own selfish strategies and saying yes and beginning to get an ear to listen to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And if we do that, you will, you will see your life change. If you're willing to pay attention to that, the Holy Spirit will be your personal tutor. I shared in the first service, I hadn't planned to say this, but I said in the first, I'll say it in the second. That is what I hope my life will be about and yours as well. There will be this honesty that says, help me see my heart and help as I get to see my heart that you would, because I know you love me, would point out the things that I will deal with. And I won't live in the shame of the things that have been done in the past, but it will stretch forward to what I know you have for me in the future so that you start paying attention to little things. It's really practical. For instance, the other day, uh, we have this, I've talked about this dog that we have, we have this little golden retriever about a year, under a year old, and the thing is full of energy. And we kind of let it in the house from time to time. Both of us are outside dogs, by the way. Anyway, my, my wife grew up on a farm. Um, anyway, so, I guess that would make any difference to you. Anyway, so, I open the door, I come in, and this dog tries to run in, and our door slams and hits it, and I immediately get angry at the dog. And I, I, I had this kind of moment where the Holy Spirit was saying, what was this anger about? Well, you know, it was really simple. I was afraid that, I was, that the dog got hurt, but my fear, because of it's been this pattern trained to me, moved right away to anger. I'm going to speak to men. I think, men, that's a real common thing. So when you get afraid, even with your children and your spouse, it could go right away to anger. I'm going to speak to businessmen in your businesses. When you get afraid, sometimes it moves right away to anger or control. The Holy Spirit trains you, teaches you, and says, hey, what's going on here? Start to deal with it. And as you begin to understand the love of God, he begins to what love drives out all fear. And as love drives out all fear, you become a different person. You have to become a different person. And we're trained to say yes to the Spirit-directed life. Over time, grace trains us and develops a Christ-like character in, our, in us. And Paul uses three simple words to describe this. One, in relationship to ourself, we learn self-control. In this little letter of Titus, five times he's talked about this word self-control. Because this, in this culture in Crete, it was a very self-indulgent culture. They were taught to just go with what they desire. And he was saying that when you begin to move into the spirit-directed life and you begin to understand how much God loves you and you begin to start having this relationship where you're open and honest with your heart before him and you're allowing other people to speak into your life about the things they see, and if you're willing to trust the fact he loves you, you're able to make these changes, not of yourself alone, but by what the Holy Spirit is doing. And when you do that, you go love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, all the way down in the fruits of the Spirit till you come to what? Self-control. It has to begin to develop in your heart. And he says that. He goes on and he says, we say yes in relation to others. We begin to learn to live upright lives. It's really simple again, folks. It means that you just do what you know is right. If you ever have a question about whether you should do something or not, if you know it's good and right, then just do it. 
And then he says, in relation to God, we learn to live godly lives, the opposite of what is ungodly. I remember when I first came into a a place in my life where I said, God, I want you to have all of my life. It was back in college. I thought it was kind of going nuts because things shifted so much. You see, before that in my life, I didn't care what God thought. I didn't care. I didn't really take into consideration what the Holy Spirit might be prompting me to do. It wasn't. It just wasn't there. It's, it's not too different when you're single before you're married. You see, when you're single before you're married, you don't have to worry about anyone else. You know, you think about, well, I'll move here. I can spend my money in this way. I can do the things that I want to do at this time of the day. But when you get married, things change. All for the good, guys and women. If you want it to be good. Because what you should do and what happens in a marriage is you begin to start saying, I can't just move because I got someone else who's in on this decision. And you begin to be your partners. You're in, in that sense, very um, collaborative together. And, and, and you begin to say about your money and you begin to start thinking about decisions you take in another person's um, desire. Well, when you come to Christ, when you come into this relationship with the grace of God and the presence of God enters your life, you, you move into this place like I did when I was in college. And I began to start thinking, well, God, what do you want me to do now? What do you want me to do? And, and it, it feels almost crazy. Like, are you going like religiously fanatic on me? What's up? No. <laughs> You're just beginning to say yes to what it means to live a godly life and to be spirit directed. I had someone after the first service share with me. They said, you know, the last few weeks you've been speaking about stuff and it's so practical. I've been just starting to do this stuff where I work. She, she said to me, I fly all around the country and I've been just doing good to people. She said, I've gotten three, four letters in the last week from people who are just thanking me for something I did for them. I thought, that's pretty cool. That's making God attractive, putting him on display, saying, isn't he great? Isn't he good? And then the grace of God trains us in that trust and love, encourages, brings us hope. Because if you sign up for God and and at a point the grace of God shows up and sometimes you're not even looking for it, but because he loves you so much, he shows up and you open your heart. And maybe you did today and you trusted and you said, I want him to be in my life. You also begin to realize that you start moving into this training and this teaching. And you know what? One of the greatest tools of teaching that the Holy Spirit uses is one you're not going to like. He uses trials. Because those strategies that we've learned, the character that's been formed when we've been children, that character that gets formed within us. And is shaped and molded, it becomes hardened and it becomes hardened as we get older and older. And if you begin to say, God, I want you to reform me and remake me and form within me the character of Christ. Sometimes the hard things that have to be broken can only happen through the heat of trials. But one of the good things about this verse of scripture is that it encourages us. As it says, listen to this. He says. It teaches me God in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope. That hope is in this passage of Scripture that Jesus is going to come again. In fact, he uses the same word appearing. Jesus will have an epiphany. At the end of time, he's going to wrap up all history. He will come and everyone will see him and we will know. And we all wait for that day when heaven will be brought to earth in all its fullness. But yet, even while we wait, even while you are in this place, grace says you can be encouraged. You can have hope because the trial you're going through, God will allow you to go through it because he's training and teaching you to say no to the self-directed life, say yes to the spirit-directed life. And as you begin to do that through that trial he breaks the things within us that have become hardened that cause all kinds of frustration in our life because he knows he wants he knows your heart better than you he knows if you want him that you also want the goodness of the things in life so he will allow you right now to go through those troubles while you wait knowing that at some point he'll bring it to an end that's the grace of god and then 
The grace of God not only encourages us bringing hope while we wait. The grace of God motivates. That's what he goes on to say here at the end of this passage. Jesus Christ, if you look at him, he gave himself up to redeem us, to buy us back. He gave his life, paid his life, the price of his, his blood for, to, to take us out of wickedness, out of our own selfishness and our own patterns that screw up our lives in order to purify that stuff out of us so that we could be a people that are put on display and made attractive showing God so that God is actually the one put on display so that all kinds of good things can happen out of our lives. He, because of how much he loves you and the goodness you've experienced, he actually motivates you to do the same thing for others. I mean, that's really what he's saying here. Jesus gave himself up. He voluntarily, completely sacrificed himself. When people didn't care a bit about him, he, he actually died. He, he, he said no to his own self in order to allow the birth of God's life into other people's lives. There are people at your place of work where you go to in a restaurant, where you go to in a, when you get gas, where you go to get food, where, where you go to school, where you go to wherever it is, the health club. There are people that God has placed around you. The Spirit is prompting you, saying, they need the goodness of God to touch their life. I just, don't you want to be signed up for that? Thanks. <laughs> I spoke once in the African American church, and it was really a fun experience because anytime I'd say something, they'd go, Yes, brother. Amen, brother. And it felt like a conversation. It was really fun. But anyway, 2.15, he basically concludes by saying this. You've been called um, for a purpose, just like Israel was called out of the out of this bondage and slavery. They were called to show the to put God on display, which happened when David and Solomon were king. And God chose for himself, says in Exodus 19, a people for himself to put his goodness out to the rest of the world, to be a light to the rest of the world. And so now he says in verse two, verse chapter two, verse 15, he concludes it by saying, Titus. Those of you who are pastors, those of you who are ABF leaders, those of you who are elders, those of you who are, serve in ministry, small group leaders, student ministry, teachers, children ministry leaders, parents who are here, students in your classroom, kids in elementary grade. Guess what? All of you, says Paul, go out and proclaim this. And I don't think he means go out and tell a whole lot of people about it because we're so good with words. What he, I think he's saying is go out and live in such a way that you are so attractive that people just are drawn to you. And what they really find they're drawn to is this. They're drawn to God who is in you. And grace has shown up. He's appeared. He's teaching you, us, this church. He's telling you that when you go through these tough times, just wait. There's still hope. It won't go on forever. And the whole purpose of it is that he will build in you an eagerness to want to go out and do good. Not to be saved, but to do good because you've been touched with goodness. And I just want you to think about it for a moment. Would you take that challenge and live that way?